Hi, welcome to the For the Love of Film podcast. I'm your host, Scott David Chase. In this episode, I'm going to talk about the movies Kubo and the Four Strings, Hold the Dark, and Widows. Uh, this is a little bit different episode. I, um, I only saw one film theatrically this week, which was Widows, which I'll talk about at the end. Um, another one that I saw, Hold the Dark, was it's a Netflix exclusive film. I'll talk about that. And then Kubo and the Four Strings is actually uh, an, an animated film that I owned on Blu-ray, or own on Blu-ray, I should say. I did not own it, but uh, came out in 2016, but I hadn't watched it until this week. I, um, you know, it was, it, it was one of those movies that, uh, it looked interesting, but I didn't really, I mean, I kind of didn't notice it when it was in the theaters. I was only tangentially aware. I mean, it was, it costs $60 million to make and it grossed $77 million worldwide, which is, uh, you know, so it was, a, it was a profitable movie, but it wasn't a huge hit. Um, it's it's the fourth feature film from Leica, uh, a, a studio that does exclusively stop motion animation. And you know, uh, the Box Troll is probably their most well known film, but they also did Coraline, and I'm forgetting what the other one was. But um, you know, I'm a huge fan of animation, and particularly stop motion animation. And so I really wanted to see it. And when it came out on home video at my local record store slash movie store, um, it was it was on sale for I, I don't remember what, but it was exceptionally inexpensive. And I was like, oh, I want to see it. I'll just buy it. And then it sat on my shelf. It was one of those movies that it, it never popped into my head. Oh, I should watch this. I should watch this. And um, as I'm, you know, I've moved into a a new smaller apartment and I'm trying to downsize a lot of my stuff. Uh, I'm trying to go through any movies that I haven't seen. Um, it's easy for me to tell because I kind of have a personal rule. If, if I haven't watched a movie yet and I buy it on home video, I don't take it out of the shrink wrap until I've watched it. I mean, obviously I have to take the shrink wrap off to watch it, but, um, so this was one that was sitting there and I said, you know, I, and I don't know why I was never in the mood to to watch it because initially I I wanted to see it very much, but and I think part of it was because it's animated in my head. I'm like, oh, it's a kids movie, which yes, it, on, on some level it is aimed at children, but uh, Leica Entertainment in particular works on a lot of different levels, even more so than. Disney movies where it's really kids can enjoy it but adults can enjoy it and it doesn't it's not just exclusively you know adults who are watching it with their kids um you know case in point I I don't have any children and uh you know I watched it um so this was the this was the feature film directorial debut of Travis Knight Travis Knight was the head animator for Leica but this is the first movie that he directed and it was interesting I didn't know until after I had watched it that he is also the the director of the upcoming Bumblebee movie the Transformers prequel which I don't 
you know, I have kind of mixed feelings about that. I'm, I, I'm a, not a fan of the Transformer series. Um, you know, Michael Bay has helmed all of them to date. I believe there's five so far, and this so the trans Bumblebee that would be the first Transformers movie that Michael Bay hasn't directed himself. And I really wonder if for Travis Knight, if this was just you know if, if it was a genuine passion project, or if it was he got the opportunity to work on a bigger film and it was strictly a payday thing. I mean, either way is it's fine. Who am I to judge why anyone makes career choices? But I find uh, a lot of times artists who I like uh, will work on these bigger things, and you know I, I so much wanna want to root for them. I mean, a, a good example of this was Duncan Jones, who his first film, Moon, I loved. And then he did the Warcraft film, which, you know, I heard him on a podcast talking about it and it was a real passion project for him. So I really was hoping for something kind of special, something out of the box, other than the, you know, the typical video game movie adaptation because he was so passionate about it when he was talking about it. And then, you know, we watched and I We left maybe a half an hour in because it was so terrible. Um, so, uh, you know, re- remains to be seen if, if Bumblebee will be like that as well. I have no plans on seeing the Bumblebee movie in the theater. Um, I may or may not end up seeing it on home video. I mean, I haven't seen all of the Transformers movies. I think I may have only have seen the first two and they're just noisy, clunky, ridiculously loud action spectacles with it, it really feels like no artistic merit whatsoever. And, um, you know, to, to go on a, another side road, because um, the Transformers were, it was a line of toys f- from the 80s when I was a child. And I, uh, I don't know. I was I was never a huge Transformers fan, either of the toys or the, or the animated series. So I don't feel completely let down by the, that film series. But uh, I was a huge GI Joe fan, and still still am a fan of the comic book. And you know, I I, I, I collect the action figures still, primarily the the ones from the 1980s. And there was two live-action G.I. Joe films, and those those were terrible. I did feel very let down by those. I think primarily because, um, you know, these were characters that were very vivid to me growing up, and it, I, I feel like Hasbro, the properties that they own that they've turned into movies so far, has no respect for the audience as thinking, as you know, as thinking people. It's it's just done as a commodity. Okay, here's a here's a brand that people already know. So let's make some money off of this. Uh, as far as making it a worthwhile film, standalone piece of work on its own, it's, that's really it hasn't been the case so far. And I'm you know I'm very reluctant for the Mask movie, which is coming up in 2019. F. Gary Gray directed it, which again that's he. Not a bad director, but um, I mean, he made the most successful, uh, financially successful, the Fast and the Furious series so far, and he's he's an action director. And yeah, it would have to be an action movie, but uh, I just I don't have high hopes for the Mask movie, which is another 
another franchise I loved as a kid. Anyway, getting back to Kubo and the two strings. Um, I had to keep reminding myself watching this movie that it was stop motion because some of it very much looked computer animated. And I'm not, I don't say that in a negative way, um, even though I'm not traditionally a huge fan of computer animation. Um, But there were things that were achieved with special effects in this film that I had never seen in a stop motion film before. I mean, it was nominated for um, both best animated feature at the Oscars and best visual effects. Uh, it won neither, but um, and it's you know it was the it was the first stop motion animated film to ever be nominated for best visual effects and. It's only the second stop-motion film to ever be nominated for Best Animated Feature. Uh, the Nightmare Before Christmas being the first one. So, I mean, I really love this movie. Um, uh, basic story is Kubo is a young boy who, uh, you know, he lives in Japan a few hundred years ago. And he lives with his mother who's sort of in a semi-comatose state during the day and then at night she kind of livens up and they're in hiding from her father the moon king it's a supernatural being and her two sisters and Kubo only has one eye he's missing his left eye he has a eye patch over it and it's said that you know the moon king his grandfather stole his eye and and he and his two daughters Kubo's aunts are looking for him to steal his other eye. Uh, His father was a great samurai warrior who died uh, fighting the Moon King. So, um, you know, stuff takes place and Kubo ends up having to go on a quest and um, he is accompanied by a talking monkey and a little bit later, a, a giant anthropomorphic beetle who have some connection to Kubo, but we don't really know what initially, and it's, you know, obviously it's revealed later in the movie, and you know, he goes on a quest to find the three pieces of his father's armor, the the his magic sword, his, his breastplate, and then his helmet, so he could defeat the Moon King. So it's, you know, it's a fairy tale, but it's doesn't dumb down the writing for children. It trusts that children can figure out what's going on. And, you know, for a PG movie that's, you know, animated, aimed at kids, it is dark and it is genuinely, there are some genuinely frightening moments and it, it primarily with uh, with the two sisters when they the, when they come at night to try and collect Kubo's eye, uh, you know, there it's very eerie. Um, you know, as a forty two year old man watching this movie, I was I was genuinely frightened for several scenes in this. And uh, you know, they're both the sisters are voiced by Rooney Mara, who does a great job of being creepy. Uh, Charlize Theron voices Kubo's mother, and then uh, later the the monkey 
and then Matthew McConaughey does the voice of the Beatle, and then there's yeah, a couple other smaller voice actors. I, I, apparently there was some controversy when the movie came out because it was another film that was considered whitewashed because the primary, even though it takes place in Japan, most of the most of the cast are Caucasian, and you know I can I can certainly sympathize with that issue that's been going on for forever in a lot of films. Um, you know when 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 a role calls for a specific op, uh, ethnicity, and then someone else is cast, uh, you know, Caucasian is cast. I mean, probably the most egregious example of this is the movie Aloha, where Emma Watson, uh, not Emma Watson, sorry, Emma Stone is supposed to be half Hawaiian, and clearly she's not nothing, not taking away anything from her as an actress, but, um, you know, and they got a lot of grief about that as well. But for an animated film where it is people's voices, um, you know, particularly for a, a, a smaller studio like Leica, they need kind of every chance they can get to, to get people to come see it. So I understand using bigger name actors' voices in this. You know, I don't take anything away from them doing that. I don't. I don't necessarily think it's a problem. But again, um, being a a Caucasian person myself, maybe my opinion on this is it doesn't doesn't matter. I'm I'm certainly speaking from a place of privilege. So, but um, yeah, I really liked Kubo. If you're a fan of animation, definitely check it out. If you like fantasy and and fairy tales, it certainly certainly will entertain. Um, it's visually amazing. The music is fantastic. Um, really just it immerses you in this whole fantastic world and I really really it exceeded my expectations I liked it a lot um, next movie I saw was Hold the Dark uh, the um, it's the I believe the third film from uh, Jeremy Soulnier I'm, I'm no I'm kind of butchering his last name it's you know, it's spelled Saulnier, which is how I had said it in my head the first couple times I had seen his movies, and you know, I had to look up because I knew it was probably of French origin, and I was saying it wrong. So, um, according to Wikipedia, it's Saulnier. Uh, he had previously done Blue Ruin and Green Room. Uh, Green Room, uh, I saw a couple years ago when me and my friend Greg Gaskell were doing our, uh, seeing, seeing a movie in every theater in New Hampshire, and it was one of those movies that we saw, uh, re both really enjoyed it, and it was the, it was the last film that Anton Yelchin was in, uh, before he, he passed away very suddenly from a terrible car accident, and, you know, he died less than a month after we saw it, um, we saw the third Star Trek reboot, that same year and he had already passed away at that point but uh, so I was very much looking forward to Hold the Dark. It was originally supposed to be released theatrically the 
the, the production company uh, or the studio, A24, had funded it and then they made some strange deal for Netflix to release it instead. So it was, I know it was, it played at the Toronto International Film Festival and it did really well, or it got a great response, uh, I should say. And um, yeah, it wasn't released theatrically in the United States. Uh, I don't really know more specifics that other than A24 sold it to Netflix. And I was, you know, a little surprised. Uh, A24 is a studio that I really uh, enjoy. Pretty much everything I've seen them do so far, I guess maybe uh, mid-90s, Jonah Hill's directorial debut, which I talked about a few episodes ago, was the first uh, film of theirs that I remember seeing that I remember being disappointed by. But, uh, you know, no no fault of theirs. No studio is going to make 100% films that I really enjoy. I mean, I have very specific tastes. And, you know, going going off of that idea about specific taste it was funny, the few people that I know who have also seen Hold the Dark uh, really didn't like it, were disappointed with it and I um, I really I really liked it um, I mean I, I, I like this director's films they're very dark uh, very bleak I mean dark both in tone and um literally dark uh, oftentimes it's, there's a lot of shadow work and um, you know this uh, this movie a lot of it is almost like a silent film there's a lot of shot shots in the wilderness I mean it takes place in the Alaskan wilderness it was it was shot in Vancouver British Columbia but it, it's supposed to take place in Alaska and uh you know, Jeffrey Wright is in it, Alexander Skarsgård and uh, Riley Keough and several Native American and Native Canadian actors in it as well. And so it's basically the story about this small camp in Alaska and uh, this woman's this mother's uh son is taken by a pack of wolves and he's not the first child in in this town in this area to be taken by this pack of wolves and so Jeffrey Wright plays uh, uh, an investigator not not an investigator uh, an expert uh, a wolf expert he's written a book about wolves behaviors and she writes to him and she basically wants him to track down and find this wolf and so he spends some time looking for it and um, discovers something much more sinister has happened to the child and kind of goes from there and at the same time um, the the child's father has been deployed to Afghanistan and he's he's wounded in combat and and is returning home know he's informed of his son's death and he something in him snaps either snaps or has always been broken in him but he goes seeking revenge and vengeance and so it's sort of the 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 two stories two 
you know, narratives cross. It's it's a very uh, it's there's not a ton of violence in it, but the violence that is in the movie is extreme, and that's been the case with uh, Jeremy Sonier's other films as well. There's the 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 effects in this. I mean, I'm really interested to see how he does the gory effects in his movie because they're incredibly realistic, incredibly believable. Um, there's a particular shot in this film where there's a you know there there's a there's a shootout um, where there's a there's a, a guy in a perched perched up high and just opens fire with a machine gun on people and there's a shot of someone running from him and getting struck from behind and a, a big part of his his face flies off and you know it's very very graphic you can see everything um, you know the violence in in his films shows the real consequences of you know violence uh, on the human body and you know having having grown up see, seeing hundreds of action movies and so on and so forth it's it's interesting to me to see that i can still be shocked to be upset by violence and um you know he does a great job of that in in his films uh the, jeffrey wright is the is the wolf expert and gives a great performance. Jeffrey Wright's great in pretty much everything I've ever seen him in. Even in films I don't like, he gives really solid performances. And this is almost a, it's a similar role to the role that he plays on the HBO show Westworld, uh, but even more introspective. It's it's a very subdued performance from him. So the couple times that he his character does sort of come out of his melancholy, it's it's jarring and it's effective. Uh, uh, Alexander Skarsgård uh, gives a terrifying performance in this. Uh, worlds away from the performance he gave in Mute, uh, Duncan Jones' Netflix original movie that came out earlier in this year. I talked about it earlier in the year I didn't enjoy that film but uh, I mean it was a well made thing it just it, it, it's the parts never connected in that movie for me at least but um, you know Alexander Skarsgård is terrifying in this movie and you know is it, there's something about the Skarsgård family because uh, that can really do horror well because Bill Skarsgård played Pennywise in 2017's uh, remake of Stephen King's It, and you know also Stellan Skarsgård, their father, uh, plays the the uh, the villain, the the killer in The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. Sorry if that's a spoiler, but that movie's almost ten years old now, um, or at least seven years old. But anyway, uh, Alexander Skarsgård gives a great performance. Uh, I was really Hoping Riley Kilo, Ke- Riley Keo, was going to be in this film more. She's an actress that I've really enjoyed in the last few years. Uh, she gave a great performance in Mad Max: Fury Road, and I've seen her in a bunch of independent films 
since then and really liked everything that she's done. But she's she's at the beginning of the film and then disappears for the middle half of the movie and then reappears for, you know, the end of the movie as well. But uh, um, visually it's stunning and I wish I had gotten to see it on a big screen because the, the, the wilderness, there's these, these beautiful, uh, huge shots of the Alaskan wilderness and... Um, and there are parts of the movie that are so dark as well that, uh, you know, there, it's just a little pinholes of light coming through. And I think the visual scope of it is lost on the, the, the streaming medium. You know, I, I watch when I watch stuff on Netflix, I'm just watching it on my phone. So it's a, a screen that's, you know, maybe two inches by two by three inches. And, um, you know, I know that you can hook Netflix up to uh, a smart TV and or a TV with internet connection, but I do not have that capability in my present living situation, so I make do. But anyways, yeah, I really wish I had gotten to see this theatrically. I'm glad I got to see it at all, but um, uh, uh, certainly tough to rec- recommend this across the board. Um I know, again, my buddy Greg, uh, his, his thing with a lot of movies is, okay, what's, what's happening? What's the story in it? And where this is much more about mood and uh, fixated on the, the motivation of the three characters. I mean, this is definitely, much, definitely very much a, a character study film, not so much about the what happens. I mean, the... The entire plot of the movie I could probably sum up in three sentences. I won't just because I don't want to spoil it for anyone who's planning on seeing it. Uh, but, um, I mean, I would give this movie a solid 8 out of 10. But, I, like I said, uh, it's certainly not for everyone. Forgot I didn't, I didn't give a numerical rating to Kubo and the Two Strings. I would give Kubo and the Two Strings a 7 out of 10. But um, Then the last film that I saw widows kind of goes in with my, uh, what I was saying about uh, my taste differing from a lot of other people's. Uh, I certainly like a lot of darker, dramatic, uh, melancholy stories. Um, so there are certain people that whose opinions of movies very much line up with my own. And then there are people who their opinion about a particular film I can almost always guarantee is 180 degrees the opposite of how I'm going to feel about a film. So some of these people I'll actually check in with and say, you know, how did you feel about this movie? And I know if they didn't like it or had a really strong reaction against it, chances are pretty good that I might actually like it. And vice versa, if it's something that they really loved, really enjoyed, uh, more often than not, it's something that I don't really like, I don't connect with. And it's neither good nor bad, it's just, you know, we're different types of people. And uh, it's funny, I have some friends, uh, Kristen and Will, who have their own podcast called So I'm Watching This Show. They off, they It's mostly movie reviews, but they'll also talk about TV shows and music occasionally. And, uh, you know, I've joked with my friend Will, not the Will who hosts it, but Will is married to Kristen, the, the other host, and 
I've known Will for some time and I've, I've joked that uh, if the two of them really like something, I can guarantee that I'm not going to like it and vice versa. Usually the stuff that they love is stuff that I despise. So um, I really enjoy their podcast. Uh, so I'm watching this show. I definitely recommend checking it out. But it's fun because if I see that they have reviewed something that I'm about to review, I won't listen to their review till afterwards. Um, I, I kind of cheated with Widows because I, <laughs> I was pretty sure I knew what they were going to think about it. And I wanted to listen to it. Anyways, just because I was driving the other day and it pretty much was dead on. So they really liked Widows, which going with my theory is true. Um, I despised this film. Um, Widows was a movie I was very much looking forward to seeing. Um, You know, great cast, Viola Davis. uh, Viola? Viola. I don't know. Um, uh, Michelle Rodriguez, who I could take take her or leave her. Sometimes she's good. Sometimes she's not. Uh, uh, Colin Farrell, uh, Daniel Kaluuya, Jackie Weaver, Carrie Coon, Robert Duvall, Liam Neeson, and uh, who's the other? Uh, Cynthia Arrivo, who I didn't know her by name, but she was she was the high point of the movie uh, Bad Times at the El Royale, which I saw last month. And you know, when I saw the preview, I didn't recognize her because she looks very different in this than she did in that. But um, uh. You know, and Steve McQueen did 12 Years a Slave. Um, he did a, a movie called Hunger with Michael Fassbender years ago, which I loved. And, you know, just great pedigree for this movie. And just, uh, they were all disserviced by just an awful, awful script uh, from Steve McQueen and Gillian Flynn, uh, who uh, Gillian Flynn probably... Uh, most uh, most well known for uh, writing Gone Girl. Um, I know she's done that show Sharp Objects as well. I haven't seen that yet, but um, man, I mean, so this is a big s- sweeping crime caper drama, or at least it attempts to be. Uh, Plot wise, it's not too close to it, but it's uh, it it feels like it really wants to be Michael Mann's heat. And that is a cinematic masterpiece. And this is far from it. Um, You know, first of all, Liam Neeson uh, completely overacts in this movie. I, you know, I, I made comment on Facebook when I initially saw this, that it was the most, you know, he overacts the worst I've seen him do since the movie dark man with a bunch of people, Responded to me, how dare you say that about Darkman? Uh, I, I, and I really like the movie Darkman, Sam Raimi's Darkman. Um, but it's a very campy, very pulpy, comic book-esque movie. And Liam Neeson is very much over the top in that. Um, whether or not that was Sam Raimi's direction or just Liam Neeson's acting in the movie, that's how, that's how it is. And uh, it has not aged well. His performance has not aged well. Um, uh, that's, you know, acting wise, it's the only huge thing that stuck out. I mean, Colin Farrell, um, he's a solid actor who's occasionally done brilliant work. Uh, I mean, he's heartbreaking in the movie in Bruges and, uh, he's also great in the movie on Dean, but he just cannot do a convincing American accent. He's an Irish actor and, um, he just, he's not convincing 
And then, and, uh, Robert Duvall, just, uh, you know, a, a legend, uh, an acting legend. And this is a one note character, um, that there's no substance to it. And, uh, I mean, worst of all, uh, you know, they, they, they have him utter a racial slur in this and it's only in one scene. It's not really explored with this character that much, but it's, I mean, it's very predictable and, you know, Robert Duvall is getting up there in age and, you know, I don't know how his health is and I'm obviously not wishing any ill, ill will or, you know, anything bad to happen to him, but it would be a shame if this is his final performance uh, because it's just a waste and he's, he's a legend and he's, he's amazing in so much of what he's done. Uh, it just, the, the script is all over the place. Um, the tone, even within single particular scenes, jumps all over the place. Uh, there's, we're supposed to believe that these women bond after their husbands all die, um, which I could understand. But, you know, it's not made clear in the previews that none of these women know each other beforehand. It's not, uh, you know, their husbands are all in a in a you know, a crime gang together, but we really don't see any of the beforehand, you know, the, 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 the accident where all their husbands are killed is the opening scene of the movie. And then we see minor interaction with Viola Davis and Liam Neeson in flashbacks. And the other, uh, three women, we don't see any flashbacks with them and their husbands. You know, we, we get to see one opening scene with each of them and their, their husbands. And, you know, uh, John Bernthal uh, uh, plays Elizabeth Debicki's husband. And, you know, the fact that he he's kind of a big actor now, I was assuming we were going to see him more in flashbacks, and you really don't. And Carrie Coon, the, the great actress Carrie Coon, who, you know, had a fantastic role in Gone Girl and I thought was going to be used a lot in this uh, really disappears for most of the movie and then pops up for a stupid twist, which I saw coming a mile away. Um, it's just, uh, it was frustrating to the nth degree. You know, people are talking about Oscar buzz for this movie. Uh, I, this movie is garbage in my opinion. Uh, it tries so hard to be a smart, intelligent crime caper. And it's just, it's really stupid. It's convoluted, but really stupid as well. Like the, the crime caper that, uh, gets pulled off the robbery doesn't make a lick of sense as, you know, first of all, why there's all this money at the place that they're stealing from, because they're stealing from a political campaign office. And the fact that they would just have, stacks of cash and then hidden in a secret room. And it doesn't make any sense. Um, the fact that none of the women have ever, uh, committed any sort of crime like this. And they all of a sudden pull together, even though there's like zero bonding earned among them, all of a sudden they just over, it seems like overnight they throw together this, this plan. And then, you know, spoiler alert, they pull it off. Um, it's just ridiculous. The stupid twists are dumb. Um, I just, I didn't care about any of these characters. Um, 
Elizabeth Debicki is the one character that a lot of people are calling out as being exceptional and great. And, uh, I mean, the actress did a fine job. I, I haven't seen her in anything else. I guess she's been in some notable things, but I haven't seen her in anything else. But, um, you know, she did a fine job in the performance, but it's, it, it's a cliched role. Um, I don't know, Lucas Haas, who's who's an actor that I like, who doesn't work nearly as much as I I'd like him to. Uh, has a really kind of, you know, he's an extended role. Uh, using the carrying over the comparison to Heat, he's basically playing the Hank Azaria role from Heat in this movie. And uh, yeah, I just man, I hated this movie. I really wanted it to be good, and it disappointed so much. So, and it's. You know, it's really long. Uh, I mean, it's it's. I believe it's two hours and ten minutes, but it felt at least twenty minutes longer than that, and it just kept going on and on. And there's so many characters, and whereas Heat is a longer film, Heat is almost three hours long. I'm completely engrossed the whole time. I mean, that's one of my favorite films of all time, and I want to see more of all the characters that are in it. And uh, even though it's almost three hours long, left me wanting more where this, I just wanted this movie to be over. Uh, yeah, I hated Widows. I would give Widows a three out of ten. Uh, certainly going to be in my five least favorite films. Um, I told my buddy Greg, this is probably the movie that I dislike the most that I've seen this year. I've seen worse films this year, but I was actually looking forward to this movie, expecting it to be good. And it was not, in my opinion. So, um, you know, and it was made by capable people, artists that I like and respect. And it was just a huge letdown. So to me, that's that's almost a worse crime than just seeing a bad movie by some anonymous people that I'm not familiar with. So um, thanks for listening. And uh, I'll talk to you again soon.